0: This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at upcase.com.
1: How you doing? Can you hear me? Yeah. I got Sounds a, new... a lot less like a bathroom.
0: Oh, yeah. It's still <laughs> a little bathroomy. A little, a little bath- bit, but, but, but a lot less. I got a new microphone. Okay. It is very fancy.
1: It All is right. on a boom arm. Nice. It
0: has a pop filter.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do not have a pop filter. People talk about pop filters and I don't have one. But I guess I could make one. Out of like a sock or something? Yes. Mm-hmm. I've seen videos of people making like take some kind of ring of something and spreading a, a piece of sock or like of a like, piece of pantyhose or something <laughs> over it. Or mm-hmm. you could probably find a used pantyhose yeah
0: i yeah that seems like a reasonable thing
1: <laughs> T- to be able to find I don't know <laughs> you know in the world <laughs> sure <laughs> although I've also heard a trick that supposedly if you hold like a finger or else a pencil vertically in front of your lips between your lips and the microphone all the time, that that <laughs> actually that actually breaks up the air and eliminates also of the pops. I'm gonna be
0: no. I'm gonna be like halfway through some diatribe and like look up and think you're shushing me on the other side. <laughs> I don't think that's gonna be good. It's gonna interrupt no. my flow. Hey
1: everybody, this is Jack in Stockholm, and this is Gordon in Austin, and this is Build Phase.
0: Oh, man. How are things? Good.
1: Yeah. It's actually uh, gotten warm in Stockholm, mm. which has been really, really nice. It's actually cold
0: here today. I woke up, okay. and it was hot and humid, and then it started raining, and now it's... Let me look at my fancy Apple Watch. Okay, so 27 Celsius.
1: Okay. That's way warmer than it is in Stockholm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but
0: like for here, you know, when I go out, I go out in shorts and a t-shirt, and it's like... I guess, what is 27? 27 times 2 plus...
1: Plus, well, so it's probably like 85, 84. Yeah, so it's like 80s.
0: That? that seems high. Like, the wind... Maybe it's because I, when I went to lunch, it was raining. Like, drizzling. Right. You know, like, just, like, mm. gross rain. I don't know.
1: Yeah, that always makes it feel Yeah, that's worse. not. It wasn't great. It wasn't great. Yeah. Anyway. No, but things are good. I'm um, still working on my same project mm-hmm. joined by another developer at the client actually he's also another consultant but at the same client and he's getting more and more into uh, argo and swish and picking up things which is cool sweet he's digging it or is he likes it okay he likes it that's good and i think uh like he pointed out he one of the things that he's doing is we have some stuff that we're reading not from json across the network but like as json files stored in the app bundle mm-hmm. And so he's going through the steps of like, opening that up and then running it through the JSON deserialization and all these things. And he's doing it kind of the the standard sort of Swift way with like a, a bunch of guards so like he has got a method that's going to try and at the end produce a decoded list of things from this. And it's got like, five or six lines that every single one of them is guard let something equal the result mm-hmm. else return. Mm-hmm. And he was like, "This seems terrible." And so I kind of pointed him to the—I uh, don't know what it's called—the operator that's defined in Result that lets you sort of chain. If you have an optional on the left, and if that thing actually ends up being non-nil, then it passes that into the thing on the right. You're using it in like API client yeah, and Swish, so chain together stuff. That's right. It's, it's flat, flat map. map, yeah. So is that operator also called flat map, or it's just yeah? Uh, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I would just call—I okay. would just say the flat map operator. Okay. Yeah, or like infix flat map, you know what I mean. But okay, but it sure. is either but either way, like that is flat map. They're the exact same thing. Like if you look at the way, particularly if you look at the way like runes works, right? Like all of those infix operators, they all they do is they call the method,
1: the instance method itself. So right, yeah. So now I showed I showed them that because there's a pretty good alternative when you know that you have a thing where. Like, this can fail in five or six spots, Mm -hmm. and you don't care exactly how it fails. You just want to either get an answer and get on with it, or not get an answer and just bail. Right. And that's when, like, chaining it together is pretty useful. But the opposite side of that, though, is that I've had things like using Swish, where I want to know during debugging, Mm. I want to know, okay, where... That this thing fails especially when i'm first setting up a new project mm-hmm. and i'm like trying to figure out okay what's going on it was, it's because i didn't have the right things in my headers for the server and it's you know it's throwing back something weird at me or whatever and then that sort of chain to me becomes really hard to debug especially because when swish is an external library external framework that you build into your project xcode doesn't know about it and you can't right. step through it properly or even if you can set a breakpoint it'll say oh well I've optimized away all the right. symbols, so good luck with that. So then, what I usually do is I actually create in like in my current project, I actually have a duplicate of API client called my mm-hmm. API client that I use temporarily when I need it, and that I just have the, that exact same thing with the flat map operators, but each step of the way I assign it to something so I can set a breakpoint and step through and see which of these things actually yeah. failed. Which doesn't really feel like, I mean, it feels like a step that I shouldn't have to take, but I haven't really found a better way to deal with this. Yeah, there's a
0: couple places in Swish right now that I feel like are great for happy path and not great for sad path. Like, there's a few places where it's like, "Ah." Like, one of our clients basically had to duplicate the entire API client in their project in order to create what they called verbose API client, which... Kind of is similar. Okay. Except for that instead of assigning along the way, it's printing along the way. So like every every time right. it just like prints a thing, prints a thing, prints a thing, prints a thing.
1: Yeah, which I've also I've also done the same thing, not by actually putting prints in there, but actually just putting the uh, breakpoints and X- mm-hmm. actually with actions on right, them right, to just right. log each line as it's going through.
0: That kind of sucks. That's not that's not ideal. I think that it's a combination of that It's hard to add that kind of flexibility to a framework that's working the way Swish is working with right. monadic pipelines and so many generics and stuff like that. I think it's a combination of that. It's just kind of like a hard problem to solve. It's also a problem with probably tooling, right? like, you know, being able to add debug statements easier would probably simplify things, right? Right. And then it's probably, a, to some extent, a failure of education, like in that mm-hmm. it's hard to debug if you don't fully grok kind of how it's working, right? So like right. printing everything out along the way seems like it makes the most sense, except for that the way those flat map, that flat map pipeline is going to work is that it's always going to return the first error it encounters. So it's either right. going to return success, like the thing you expect to get, or it's going to return the very first error it encounters. And like back when we were only using NS error as the error type for Swish, I think that that could be fairly ambiguous. You'd just have to dig mm-hmm. through this NS error thing. There should be, there's basically one Swish error instance per step in the pipeline at this point. Okay. Okay. So there's a possibility, like, I think Adam, one of our coworkers here in New York, added, opened an issue saying, like, it'd be good to get some more info in this one specific failure case, right? Like, this Mm -hmm. thing failed, and it didn't, and and it told me this, and that's great, but I would like to have a little bit more information as to, like, what exactly it was that failed. I think it was that NSJSON serialization failed, and so we just return a serialization error, and... Mm -hmm. And then we attach the NS error. But all that says is like, we couldn't parse the JSON. We don't then also attach the data that NSJSON serialization failed to parse. I see. If we did that, then when you got that error, you would have maybe a little bit more context to dig into. But like the point being that once you have a swish error, basically each instance of that enum. Is basically representing a single case or a single mm-hmm. point of failure in the pipeline. And because it's each thing is representing a single point of failure, you shouldn't have to like really break on each thing. You should just be able to get the thing at the end and tell at least the first place it failed. Okay. The problem is, and we run into this with Argo as well, because they're using a very similar, you know, they're both using kind of monadic structures and these kind of like result type structures. And so we run into this problem in Argo as well, which is where this really falls down is if there's multiple errors, right? If you, Mm -hmm. if like in Argo, for example, if the ID parses correctly, but then the name fails, And then parsing the email of a user would fail. You never see the email parse failure. You only ever see the name parse failure. And then you fix that. And then you get an email parse failure. And then you fix that and you get the next failure. As opposed to like, here are all of the failures that we encountered along the way. And we would have to kind of restructure the way things work inside Argo to get that to be possible. Which is a bummer.
1: Yeah, that would be a big, big redo. But yeah, I think what you're saying about the error returned from from API client that does make sense. I sh- I think maybe I uh, maybe I didn't look into it from that angle enough when I was doing it. Just like trying to actually sort of make sense of the error I was getting back out. Mm-hmm. Like I felt like I, I felt like I wanted to sort of dig into it and see like exactly you know where like I like to see where the error happened. Right, right, right. And right. which just like somewhere on this line of stuff chained together for me so i was just like well wait a minute which of these things kind of like kind of like kind of like whenever you're in a debugger in general, it's a complex thing and it's like okay I set a breakpoint on this line 20 different things happen because there's a bunch yes. of math and a bunch of things happening so yeah. the same kind of thing is there it's like it's hard to sort of know yeah tease that apart
0: we have broken that in the current source i believe let me just double check before i say this in the current source for swish everything is on its own line Each one of those flat map operations is on its own line, which would, you know, if we could attach debuggers to these specific lines would improve that because you could break on this specific line and inspect elements at that place at that point. Right. So each, and that was a change that Sid just made in order to make a larger change, which is kind of cool. Actually, basically he decoupled swish from JSON essentially so previously, okay. Swish had like this hard dependency that it was assuming you were going to use JSON mm-hmm. like as the return type, and therefore you were going to re- use Argo as the parser and that kind of stuff. He decoupled that so that now you have deserializers, and then endpoints have or requests have a response parser. Okay. So the deserializer for by default is still JSON. The response parser by default is still the JSON type inside Argo, mm-hmm. but you could change that so you could have a JSON, an XML deserializer and an XML response parser, or a, you know, like a simple one would be like if your API just returns a string, you could have a string deserializer and a string response parser. Interesting. So that was a very very recent change, like last week or something. I think after okay. we recorded last. But as a side effect of that, in just kind of like working in that file, he took what I did, which is that single line thing, and he broke it up into multiple lines, and it looks a lot better. It's easier to read and stuff. So,
1: Okay. Cool. Yeah, I'll take a look. I haven't uh, updated in a while. So. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, more of that kind of, We don't we're, since we're not doing releases, some of these things just kind of slip under the radar, which is a bummer. Need right. To, it's so neat to just kind of like do that.
1: Yeah, so what are we waiting on right now to say, okay, Mm -hmm. let's make a release of this. Let's tag this with a number.
0: What's in the pull requests? So right now there's some documentation pull requests. There's, I think Sid wanted to get this thing allowing form style request body payloads. in. so right now we're only doing payloads in JSON, but Mm -hmm. it's fairly common to need to do form style payloads. So he wanted to add that. There's some documentation. There's an update for Swish error to kind of just be more specific about stuff. And then the big one I think that we need to figure out basically what do we want to do is that Adam Sharp opened an issue or he opened a pull request. He was seeing some latency around. So the way it works right now is when Swish performs its callback, so the mm-hmm. Swish you know, uses NSURL session under the covers, so it kicks out to NSURL session. The callback from NSURL session comes back on some arbitrary background thread. We do right. our deserialization, and then we push the end user's completion block or completion closure onto the main thread, specifically in a dispatch async manner. So we right. say dispatch async, move this to the main thread, asynchronously and then perform the closure. Adam had some theories around that so Sid was seeing in his client project he was seeing a lot of performance issues around Swish that honestly just did not make sense to me I still don't really understand why it was happening but he was seeing all his performance issues that were basically solved by wrapping his entire call that was touching Swish into like a dispatch async background thread Thing, like Hmm. pushing the, which doesn't make sense because that closure inside there is still being dispatched to the main thread. So I don't fully understand why that was fixing anything. But one of the theories around it was like, well, maybe it's, it it seems like it's probably something to do with shuffling threads around. You know what I mean? Especially Hmm. if you had like two or three requests, like request this thing and then take this part and then get this next thing and then take this part and get this next thing and then combine those. Well, that means that. We're creating a background thread, then we're getting back to the main thread, then we're creating another background thread, then getting back to the main thread and creating another background thread back to the main thread. So we're moving threads around. We're doing all of that asynchronous. We're never doing dispatch sync. We're only ever doing dispatch async. Right. And it just seems inefficient, and I totally get that.
1: Yeah, I think there's an interesting article that uh, Marcus Zara wrote a month or two ago. Thing called MV. Mm. He talks about this architecture called MVCN. We're basically saying, you know, yes, do MVC, but split your networking into a totally separate thing. And he's a big proponent of using NS operation and NS, NS operation queues. Right, right. Basically saying that every thing that you do that's going to fetch something in the network, make that into an NS operation or make that a part of an NS operation. Because then those things you can you can group them and you can chain them and all that kind of stuff. And as long as at the end of the day, whatever you you know the last thing that you're going to do is going to update the, the GUI, has to go back to the main thread. But like. He was a big proponent of, for every app, you'd basically write some sort of networking class that would be unique for that app that would manage the, best, the specifics of what you, that app needs to do. Yep. Which is, a, which is a bit different from what we're trying to do with Swish. Is more of a general purpose thing of being able to say, okay, whatever the app is, we want to be able to just fetch some stuff and pipe it through our deserialization and decoding and all that stuff and get, get an answer back.
0: But I don't I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that my intent with Swish was always to do that, right? Was always mm-hmm. to create like a custom networking layer in some fashion for that specific client. Like right. client being, you know, the specific app that we're pulling Swish into. That was always my intent. I never meant it to be like a drop-in thing that's just used directly. It was always supposed to be wrapped to some extent. My assumption is that most of the time it would be like an extension on API client with better named methods. You know, so instead of, so you'd have a method like API client dot login with username password. That kind of thing, you know.
1: Right, and then that yeah, extension. And that's, would, and that's the way yeah. that is kind of the way that I've been I've been using it as well in the products I've been involved in. You know, we build up stuff that is so like we don't have direct Swish calls, direct right. API client stuff baked into all the view controllers and stuff. But I think the next step that Marcus is taking it to is like what we don't do, at least what I haven't seen in that the products I've been using Swish on is he's saying that that networking class should also be responsible for the details of threads and queues or at least NS operation queues and say, okay, I want this piece of work to happen on this queue and give you that sort of, that sort of ability to kind of shuffle those things around in a different sort of way, Mm -hmm. which I guess kind of addresses what Adam and Sid have been talking about. Yeah.
0: And so that's what, to a certain extent, that's where this pull request that Adam opened is leading, I think, Mm -hmm. which is specifically that, this isn't ideal like forcing everything back to the main thread isn't ideal because of x you know right. it, it's just it's just not a 100% use case right we did that because that's what af networking did right mm. and i believe alamo fire still does is push okay. all of the completion blocks back to the main thread and the reason i like that is because there's just no question then you know what I mean. There's no confusion about what thread am I on now. Am I on this thread I started on? Right. My I... it's so much nicer to just know you're going to be on the. You know, there's like an explicit nature about it. Like all of our callbacks are going to be on the main thread. If you need to do something else, that's up to you. You know,
1: it's a sensible kind of default. Like mm-hmm. it, it's not going to do anything super unexpected. Like you know what you're going to get.
0: Yeah, right. And given how many people just. Like how many, especially new developers, given how many times people, which this isn't necessarily supposed to be like a lowest common denominator library. Like I don't think any of our stuff is, I think, you know, it's using generics and and stuff so heavily that it's a fairly advanced library, I think. But especially with new developers getting into issues where they just like call, you know, table view reload data in the completion block, you know. Right, Like, this is going to fix that for them. They just won't run into, there's an entire set of issues that they just won't run into. And maybe down the line, they understand why that's not a great, whatever. But so, the kind of proposal here, and right now, we're basically just bike-shedding over what the API looks like. Okay. It started as, let's just remove this entirely and just perform all the requests on the same background thread the NSURL request comes back on. Right. So mm-hmm. we just removed the stuff pushing onto main. And I was kind of like, well, that's interesting, but I don't know that I necessarily like that. I'd like to have some kind of default behavior here. What if we have the queue be injectable inside the perform request method and we just default it to the main queue so that we We would maintain our existing behavior, but then you'd be able to pass in any queue that you want. Mm -hmm. And we'll still call dispatch async, but we'll call it on that. And then we kind of went back and forth on this and it ended up proposing, you know, okay, well, let's make it an optional. And if we don't pass any queue, just call the completion handler on the background thread where it is, you know, Mm. otherwise call dispatch async. And basically then... I don't want to say devolved, but it kind of moved into a conversation around where does that live? Do we inject that queue at the time that you create the API client or do you inject the queue when you call perform request? Right. I'm kind of, I mean, I've been leaning towards wanting to inject the queue when you perform the request Mm -hmm. because it's just less overhead on the client. Right. But I still, I don't know. We keep going back and forth about what's the best thing. And basically, Adam and I just have differing opinions on what it should look like. And we're trying to come to a consensus of some sort.
1: Another option that occurs to me that may be totally not useful, but just popped in my head. Instead of just (laughs) passing in a queue, you could actually pass in a block that takes as a parameter another block. So you say, okay, this is the thing that's going to be called with this completion block. So you pass in a block, and that block is essentially can do whatever kind of scheduling you want. Mm. So it could say, yeah, execute this on, the, on this other queue, or it could say, you know, put this, wrap this in this operation group, then we'll put in something else that I have defined somewhere else. Hmm, that's interesting. So it would be like a scheduler block, almost,
0: or yeah closure yeah. rather but so you'd pass in like a scheduler that mm-hmm. goes from void to void
1: right right well but it has to take the block as or the other closure as a parameter right the closure that it's going like the completion block the completion handler got it yes it's going to take that as a parameter and it's going to return yes. void
0: yes yes so it would be whatever and, that whatever the completion type is or a completion closure type is the scheduler would take that to void
1: Yes. And then, and then... So then if you if you don't provide that, then the default behavior is, to, like is that we have main. a default schedule that runs it on main. Mm-hmm. But then we could do... You know, you could do arbitrarily complex stuff. And the simplest thing would be a schedule that lets you say, okay, run this on the... And we could even have... We could also define some types. We could define... Have a predefined scheduler type of some kind that is just run this on this queue so you could still have a very simple way of saying okay i want to run the completion on this queue You're just right. passing a queue to this thing to the to the factory that gives you the that that type of thing but otherwise you can also make your own arbitrarily complex schedule that does whatever you want right but as i'm describing this like i cannot think off the top of my head a, a direct use case for like where i would ever want to do this i can imagine somebody would but it's the kind of thing that, again you don't want to build in that complexity unless there's actually a reason for it. And if we haven't seen a reason, then I don't really know. Well that's
0: the that's the other thing I said, right? Is like, is this a perceived problem or is this an actual problem? Like we are talking about introducing non-trivial amounts of complexity into the API here. And I'm not convinced that we're not doing it because of a perceived issue. You know what I mean? Like there was a lot right. of negatives in there. <laughs> it's kind of hard for me to parse <laughs> as I was saying it. But, <laughs> not, 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 <laughs> but, uh, but so my concern is that there isn't actually an issue here and we're going to introduce all this complexity right before we hit 1.0 and then we're going to turn around and be like, ah, oh, shit, you know, we're actually not. Not only are we <laughs> not using this, but it turns out that this doesn't even solve the problem that I thought we had. right? Which the problem that I think we're actually seeing is like, or the biggest problem is being able to chain calls together you know that Mm -hmm. is fairly clumsy because we're still i think it's a combination of two things i think it's a combination of it's clumsy to chain calls together and then when you're then the other side of it is that like libraries like reactive coco have their own scheduler built Mm. in right and given that they have their own scheduler built in it's increasing that thread switching behavior by a significant margin. I don't know if it's like an N plus one thing or what, but like, you know what I mean? We're switching around threads at the same time that Reactive Cocoa is switching around threads so by trying to use Swish with Reactive Cocoa, which is fairly easy to do, to turn these things into signals is very very easy because, specifically because we return results and results can be transformed into signals very very Mm -hmm. trivially. But because we're doing that and they're doing that, like, it's introducing... The theory, again, the theory is that it's introducing latency. And so, how do we get around that latency? And the one answer would be like, stop switching threads and just let reactive right. cocoa handle that. But I don't think that's a good use case. Like, this library doesn't depend on reactive cocoa. Right. It can be used up with React and Cocoa, but it doesn't depend on React and Cocoa. So I think that just not doing any thread switching makes sense as a React and Cocoa library, but not, it doesn't make sense if it's supposed to be used
1: standalone, which it is. Right. So you say we, we have this perceived problem, yeah. and we have a hypothesis about maybe this will solve this, maybe make, make this better, but we don't really know yet. So what I'm thinking is maybe we should just take Swish as it is more or less right now, you know, fix if there are any outstanding bugs that we know about and fix over documentation and say, okay, this is 1.0. And then if we come up with a great solution to deal with the queuing issue, and that's only one week later, but it breaks everything, well, then that's 2.0. I mean, it's yeah, an adversion. <laughs> it we don't have yeah. to like wait around. Like, well, right. we got 1.0 now. we got to wait a while. We don't have to do Cocoa Pods thing and wait for years to have a, ma- a major version number, right? It's like- Right. No, I, I, I
0: agree 100%. We, we, like, I'm so beyond... Like, I just do not give a shit about, like, the ceremony <laughs> around versioning. We just dropped Argo 3.0 two or three weeks ago. We released Argo mm. 3.0 because it had some breaking changes in it. And there was conversation right. at the time about, like, you know, trying to avoid there was a brief conversation about does it make sense to ship... Basically, some of the breaking changes were source-compatible breaking changes, right? We updated Mm -hmm. the source code for Swift 2.2 or whatever because we wanted to fix a bunch of warnings that stuff was going to be deprecated and removed in 3.0. So we fixed those warnings, but that means that it's not able to compile in pre-2.2 Swift. Mm -hmm. And as far as i'm concerned that constitutes a breaking change and so we bumped the version number or we were going to have to bump the version number so i was asking how critical it was that we do that and someone was like well if it really bothers you this technically couldn't could be considered as a non-breaking change i was like no no like i don't care like i'll ship 3.0 today and 4.0 tomorrow i don't care right? that that doesn't bother me at all like i'm just trying to gauge whether any release is important (laughs) enough right now like (laughs) is it worth releasing anything or should we just hold off and the answer was like yeah let's just release 2.2 support so right and then the question becomes like would this become a breaking change i think that ideally it would be written in a way that it isn't right because the default behavior Mm -hmm. should still be this and we would try to I think, personally, that the default behavior should be that it performs the callback asynchronously on main.
1: And then we could have, you know, an optional parameter that we could pass in somewhere that has a default value. Exactly. That if you don't pass it in, it works just the same. If you do pass it in, you can, either with a closure or with a queue, say, okay, do this instead.
0: Exactly. So that becomes a non-breaking change that it doesn't matter. Like, we could ship that as a .1 update and say, like, hey, now you could also... I guess it would be a breaking change if people are like for test suites probably because we'd probably like if we do it the way I want to do it, it would mean Mm -hmm. changing the API for the client protocol, which Mm -hmm. isn't really intended to be used for anything other than testing. Like it's almost entirely there for testing so that if you want to inject your own fake clients, there's a protocol right right there. You don't have to do anything. You know, you don't have to make your own fake protocol extension and, and, guess our types or copy our types around like we provide a client protocol and you could just create your own fake client that conforms that protocol and inject it in but that would change that type signature for the perform request method okay but that's such a little thing i guess technically that does constitute that it's a source breaking that it's a breaking change
1: right but i mean and that's you know but again that's that's okay bump it up to 2.0 then you know then it's I think that that's kind of the whole the whole thing. Is that right? Because right now we're in the tricky spot of not having anything. anything. And so like in my project I have in my card file, you know, it's tied to a certain commit because I know that's the, you know, that commit works and I don't want to have anything busted on me. Right. So I, you know, just let that be, but like it would be much nicer to be able to, to tie that to a version number or, you know, you know, the normal Carthage stuff. Yep. So, yep.
0: I, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I, I might talk to Sid tomorrow and just say, where are we at? And if we don't do anything, I might just release like a 0. 0.8. <laughs> Pick a number. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Just something. You know what I mean?
1: Just Like yeah.
0: 0.999 <laughs> version. <laughs> uh,
1: I don't just... know if you were doing iOS stuff then, but uh, back when, uh, what the hell is it called? Cocos 2D, the game framework. Mm-hmm. They were running on like point zero nine point nine nine RC seventy three. Like it was like for <laughs> I think for like for two years they were on like zero yeah. point nine nine something. It's like okay, come <laughs> on guys. Just at some point like and the and the like every week there was a new like re- release candidate Yeah, that was always like full of new features and new stuff all the time. It's like you guys, just you know, make it 1.0 sometime, and then go on. It's like
0: yeah, yeah, move yeah. along. <laughs> CocoaPods is doing that too. Not to rag on CocoaPods because they did just release 1.0, and I'm very proud of them right. for doing that. Because I've been complaining about <laughs> that it wasn't a 1.0 basically for the entire history of this show, I right? <laughs> but uh, but they did that too, right? Where they were like, okay, we're gonna be 1.0. Beta, we're gonna be a 1.0 beta. I was like, really? And then, and then they were making breaking changes in the 1.0 beta. I was like, come on, like just just lock your shit down and then move forward from there. Like, right. like it's not hard to ship a 1.0. It really isn't. You just say like, okay, this is a version now, and you ship it. Like, I'm saying that as someone right. who's. Screwing around with my own library trying to ship 1.0, you know. <laughs> but, but, you know, I could sit down and ship 1.0 tomorrow.
1: Yeah. Just like say, that's it. Say, you know, this is it yeah. and and be done with it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like, man, like CocoaPods, they probably could, you know, reasonably could have been like on version 35 or something by now. If they had, you know, started mm-hmm. like early on, Say okay, this is 1.0. It does these things. Right. When you have to break things, that's version two. And like, just like, instead of i don't know why people get so hung up on thinking that 1.0 means we're somehow done and they're like yeah. we can't release well, 1.0 until until it's like product ready i don't know
0: so my my thing with swish specifically has been that like because we were building it organically Without, like, we did zero thinking about, like, here's what we want this library to look like. Like, Argo, we thought about what do we want this API to look like? What do we want this to look like? And when we got to that point, it was like, bam, done, 1.0, you know? Right. We didn't do that with Swish, and we tried to let it grow organically out of the needs that we had over client projects. And so, for Mm. me, it's been a combination of I'm not confident that this is the API I want, Right. Like, right. I'm not confident that I won't make a breaking change tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Because if I was going to make a breaking change tomorrow, I should just make that change and then release. You know what I mean? Like, mm. it really doesn't make sense to release three and four one day apart. Just make the change that you were going to make in four and then call that three. You know what I mean? Just like wait one more day mm. and make that change.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah. If there's really this, this st- that there is like stuff that is one day away, then yeah. Yeah, right, right, right. I'm talking literally like
0: you don't want to just make changes overnight. And it's not even for a celebratory, you know, it's not like a pomp and circumstance kind of reason. It's just that like, that's annoying as shit to have versions come out every new versions every day. It's just like, then you start saying like, well, I can't trust that this API isn't going to break every time they update. It's like, that sucks. Right. So it's a combination of like not being 100% positive that the API was going to change. And it has fairly Mm. significantly since we started. And two, there's, and this does get into kind of like the bullshit around Semver, but like that 1.0 is like, okay, this is ready to use now. Hmm. Swish is not on CocoaPods and that's on purpose because we don't want people relying on it. Right, we haven't done any blog posts about Swish. This is like basically the first time today and last week's recording are kind of like the first times we've a- I've actually talked about Swish, really at all. Right, we've been using it right. internally. A couple people have found it, be it through Argo mm-hmm. or other links because it's open source. It's been open source since day one, but like we haven't publicized it, and that's been on purpose because. Right. Again, it's been moving so fast and we didn't want to suggest using it until we were sure we wanted to use it. I'm at that right. point now, right? I'm at that point where I'm like, I feel comfortable enough with this library that I want to use it and I want to recommend, I would recommend other people use it. But my problem with all that is that, so those those are kind of the only two real reasons for not shipping a 1.0, I think, hmm. right? But the problem is that right. neither of those have ever applied to Cocopods. Right. Like (laughs) one, the idea that they haven't been, I seem to remember them saying constantly like, well, we don't want to hit 1.0 because we don't want to worry about being backwards compatible. Mm. Go look in that code base to see like, there's so much shit in there that's built in (laughs) specifically so they can be backwards compatible between versions. You know what I mean? Like it is backwards compatible. They've been doing that from day one. So that's out the window. It's like, Oh, well it's not production ready. It's like, really? It isn't? Because (laughs) people have been using it as if it's production. You know, Google's recommending it for all their installations so like, if it's not production ready now, you know, that's terrifying, honestly. Right. (laughs) You know, so it's like all that stuff. They're not the only team that's that's kind of waffled around one point. And then you get into that trap, right? Where it's like, you haven't released in so long that it's like, well now we have to make sure that 1.0 is good and good, you know, and you get, like, kind of sucked into this rabbit hole of what does 1.0 mean for this project? Right. It's weird how many feelings there are around semantic versioning, though. Yeah. like, this should be a cut and dry thing. I really like Elm, I think, does... What do they do? Hold on. I'm going to look it up first to make sure that I'm not lying. I believe Elm enforces... Yeah. Elm enforces semantic versioning and okay. basically tells you what version your library is at. So it like, <laughs> because it's compiled. So Elm is Elm is a language that I think implemented in Haskell. It looks very Haskell esque, And so it's a language mm-hmm. that looks very Haskell. It's functional mm-hmm. and it is inspired heavily by Haskell and compile. It's actually a front end language i believe it's a front-end language right now so and it compiles to javascript okay but it's compiled like it's got a compiler javascript is basically just like a compilation target so they're totally like yeah we'll switch like javascript's not going to be the end target forever we're going to switch it out with i don't remember what the there's like some web code thing like native web code thing Mm -hmm. that's happening i don't know but my point is that it's since it's compiled and since they have this package manager thing set up, what they can do is they can say, like, they can try compiling your thing and then get an API diff. Mm-hmm. And then they can determine, like, oh, this is all additions. This is just a point bump. This is no additions mm-hmm. and no removals. This is a, you know, a patch fix. Right. So, you know, if there's any additions, it's a minor version. If it's no additions, it's just implementation. It's a patch or mm-hmm. if the API has changed you deleted this or you changed the type signature of this we're going to force you to now be take a major jump it's like that is awesome because it again that's it takes cool. all this nonsense feeling crap out of it and it's just like yes machine you decide <laughs> what <laughs> what this version is like i'm so for that
1: that's actually, that's a very smart feature to have yeah i
0: feel like there was conversation around this inside the Swift package manager discussions, mm-hmm. but I could be wrong.
1: Interesting. Yeah, it seems like it's a very smart thing because it eliminates the human factor because all that stuff is really only interesting to make sure that you have the right versions of things that work together. And we already use software for that for like actually, you know, in Carthage or in, in CocoaPods, say, okay. We've got to have this version that works you know that is compatible with this version. You're specifying that in a file, mm-hmm. but it, it'd be great to have software that tells you what those things ought to be. Right, right. Right. Like so you don't have to sort of figure it out. Because I think that's anywhere that like we have to reason about these complex stuff, these complex things, that's where it falls apart. Again, back to the discussion about the networking and swish. Like, okay, we think that it's this, but Humans are notoriously bad at reasoning about <laughs> multi-threaded programming in right. general. And I think this too, like if you have two, if it's like, okay, my application and a library, I can reason about that and figure, okay, wh- okay, what am I calling in this library? What is this compatible with this version? But as soon as it's anything more complex than that, which it always is, I think it's very hard for people to reason about that and to understand, okay, what what are the implications of changing this to that and that sort of thing? Yep. So yeah it makes a lot of sense to do that I did I've heard it somewhat about Elm but I didn't really know I did not that feature of it at all that's pretty cool
0: Elm's cool I just I started scratching the surface with it but I haven't gotten too deep in it
1: I've not tried it at all Mike burns talked about it a bit I think isn't that one where like one of the features is that a type can consist of like you say that not only this type is an array but it's an array of a certain length no that's Idris. That's that Idris? That's okay. Idris.
0: So Idris is a dependently typed language. So it's like Haskell, but mm. more type information. So like, <laughs> which, yeah, is bonkers, right? So like Haskell is already crazy, you know, with the assumptions you can make based on the types that are coming in. It's like awesome. But there are things in Haskell that you just have to like know, for example. Mm. Like if you call head on a list, which would just mm-hmm. give you the first element, it's like first... Well, that doesn't return a maybe. That returns an element. So, if you call head on an empty list, bang. Right? Okay. Like, actual Haskell runtime exception. So, you just have to know that, like, it means that you end up having to put a pattern, like, you use pattern matching to get around it. So, you say, like, and a lot of times it'll warn you. You know, you can Mm -hmm. turn on warnings for these kind of things where it's like, what's the name of the thing that it's, um incomplete function or something like that. I probably have it slightly wrong. But there's a name for that kind of function that it doesn't actually take all possibilities, like head, right? doesn't take all possibilities into account. It assumes right. something that can't be guaranteed by the type system. Okay. So you do a thing where you say like, did you call this with an empty list? If you so, return this. Or if you didn't, then call head on the list, you know? Hmm. Well, in Idris, you can actually specifically say, this... Function can only be called with a list of at least one element. And so now head won't blow up ever. You can, you're just like, you have that information right in the type signature. So it's like, you just know now, like, what if this is empty? It literally can't be. That's, (laughs) and it's bonkers. Nice. No, Elm is actually in a lot of ways less powerful than Haskell is. They're missing, not missing, they have intentionally omitted a bunch of things like higher kinded types. Okay. From the language in order to simplify. They want to make it the easier language to deal with. And so they've mm-hmm. omitted a bunch of those kind of higher level features from the
1: language in the pursuit of simplification, which is okay. admirable. Right. Yeah, I mean you gotta make compromises somewhere sometimes. Totally. Yeah. Always. Well, hey, I actually had one one thing to talk about. Yeah. This is ostensibly an iOS podcast. <laughs> we're, what? we're talking about well we've been talking about Swift libraries. <laughs> it's just true. But Apple, WWDC, are you going? Is anyone of our team actually going to the actual conference? I know people are going Tony, to San Francisco probably somebody. Yeah, so. Tony,
0: Tony lives in San Francisco, he so there. he'll be there. I think Diana is going to go. Okay. I am not going. I am going to sit on my couch here in Austin and watch session videos. Yep. That sounds nice. Yeah, I'm kind of looking forward to it. So it looks like Tony, Diana, and Giles are going to be there. So it looks like we're going to have three people going.
1: Actually going to the conference or just going to be in
0: in the city? In San Francisco. As far as I know, nobody's planning on actually going to the conference. Right. I think it's just too expensive at this point.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the utility of being at the actual conference has, maybe that's not, Decreased, but there is so much increased utility in not being there because so the videos go up online so quickly and everything nowadays. It's sort of like, yeah, it feels less and less like missing out on something by not being there.
0: Yeah, the only thing you're missing out on, and I think I've had this conversation with Mark in previous episodes, but like the only thing mm-hmm. you end up missing out on is the socializing and the network, right. You know, the networking and the socializing stuff. I've been saying for years basically that it really WWDC makes sense for them to keep making it less and less interesting to actually go to the conference because Mm. it's way too expensive. Like how happy do you think Apple would be if they just don't have to ship a thousand engineers to Moscone (laughs) once a year? Like that seems awesome, right? What if they could Mm. just do it all at their new spaceship town hall right? and they sell tickets to the keynote, maybe for press and then everybody else do whatever the hell you want. Right. You know what I mean? It's, Cheap, way cheaper for them. And five, six years ago, there was a like an actually like you had a competitive advantage by going to WWDC because you got access by going to those session videos, you got access to information that wouldn't be available to people that didn't attend for right. six months. You could be six yep. months ahead of your competitors. But once they started releasing videos and to everybody, because remember before 2014. I think Mm. they didn't release videos. Not to everybody. To attendees, I think they released videos. But if you didn't attend WWDC before 2014, you did not you never saw any of the sessions. They were just completely black box. It's like, holy shit. (laughs) And then even in 2014, like they dumped all of the sessions about two months or something after WWDC happened. And then 2015, it was
1: like two weeks. Yep. I may have those dates wrong. It might be 2020. 12 or 2013. Yeah, I'm not sure either. But yeah, it's been the definite ramp up in sort of availability and speed of the whole thing. Like I remember some guys who went like 15 years ago and at that point, like attendees would get the videos Mm -hmm. mailed to them on DVD (laughs) about a half a year later. Right. (laughs) Like that was the the speed of the thing. Maybe not, but it was like three or four months for sure. It was a long time later. So like if you had paid all this money... Then you also got these DVDs. And it's, like you're saying, nobody else got that. That was not available anywhere else. Like, you, it was only if you'd been there.
0: And they got to see those sessions live and nobody got those. And we all right. know how important those sessions really are. There's stuff that is said even offhandedly in sessions that is not documented any other places. Like, we've had long conversations, for example. I think a perfect example is, like, whether or not to mark IB Outlets as weak. Right? Right. Recently, this keeps coming up. This has come up a yeah. couple times for us. And the official Apple answer is don't use weak. Just right. leave it alone, especially in Swift. Just don't annotate it. We'll do the right thing. It's fine. It's probably going to be strong, but it'll be fine. Don't use weak. And that's right. crazy because if you look at like historically, I think all of us have been under the assumption that well, you're supposed to use weak, everybody knows you use weak for IB outlets. That's what you do right? Like, hmm. that's we—that's the way we've written code for decades, right? Right. Forever. But that has apparently, not only is that not the suggested way to do things, it hasn't been basically since Arc. But if you look at all the documentation...
1: Yeah, and if you look at how Xcode actually works, like, if you, if you control that, drag yeah. an outlet, it creates it weak yep. by default. And it's like... Yeah, and it's weird. Like, I, I had an issue just uh, today where I had, like, an outlet to a layout constraint... And there are some cases where if you deactivate a layout constraint, not only does It'll it get disappear. deactivated, it actually gets removed. It goes yeah. away. Yeah. Sweet. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. I had a, I had a constraint, and now later, I deact- it's gone. Like, I could yeah. reactivate it because it was gone. And nowhere in my code am I removing that constraint. And it's like, yeah. okay, Google around. Someone said, well, make it not weak. Like, sure enough, that fixed it.
0: Yeah. And so the only place, the only place that you can find this recommendation from a UI kit engineer saying, yeah, not only should you not be using weak for these things, you you really, sh- it, we're talking about 2014, you shouldn't have been using weak for these things for the past couple of years. Right is in a session video from last year. In a session video (laughs) from last year, someone said it on stage and everyone was like, holy shit, are you serious? Because it's not (laughs) not documented anywhere. It's, like you said, Xcode does the wrong thing. All the sample code uses weak. It's just like and so imagine not having that information and never hoping to get that kind of information. You know what I mean? Like, and how much of that is out there, you know? And yep. you're talking about, like, that you're trying to build a business on this platform and your competitors have that information and you don't. That's, right. you know, weak itself. Like, whether or not to mark shit is weak is, like, that's trivial, right? It's not going to make a difference. But there's other stuff, like just generic framework knowledge that your, right. your competitors could get that you would just never. But now, you know. Now that they're streaming sessions. Yep. So I'm going to sit on my couch and just watch sessions live unless yep. I think they're boring. In which case, I'll rewatch other sessions or just, cheat, you know, but I get to right. do that from my house with my dog.
1: Yep. That's pretty nice. I mean, that's what I usually do here. I mean, I'm, I'm in Sweden, so I'm nine hours ahead of California. Right. right. So when they have things streaming like that, I can sit here and it's it's evening and I have a mm-hmm. lot of evenings full and too many late nights during that week off and I'm just sitting, sitting up watching stuff. Yeah. And go to work all day. So it's good. Right. Did you
0: have any other questions about WWC or were you just trying to bring it up?
1: I just want to bring it up to hear if anyone was like what the plans were.
0: Yeah, so I think so three as far as I know, three people are going. I think at least three. I think we are gonna try to do like the past two years, we've done a breakfast. Maybe it was last year and then three years ago. I don't know. Hmm. But we've done a breakfast a couple times. I believe we're still going to do that. Okay, cool. I'm going to say we're going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) I'll just say we're going to do a breakfast this year. Probably will. I don't have details yet, but we'll talk about it on this show. Yeah. Whenever I get details for that. And then I should probably write something down to make sure that I make sure that we're doing a breakfast. Remember breakfast. That breakfast is happening. I'm going to see that task like tomorrow morning and not know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, breakfast. Um, I had breakfast. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, check. <laughs> Done. Good job, Gordon. <laughs> anyway. I'm I'm good. Maybe we should wrap it up. Show notes for this episode will be found at buildphase.fm slash 93. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can email us at hosts at buildphase.fm or you can reach out to us on Twitter. This is horrible. Mark is so much better than this than I <laughs>
1: Should have it written down. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that would be too professional. <laughs> this is a very off-the-cuff
1: show. We share the other group thing that I'm on this Retro retrocomputer roundtable. We have, we have a document, we have a Google document that is shared that has the complete text. So whoever's the host just reads it off.
0: Ah, oh, it sounds intense. It's pretty smooth. It's funnier when we <laughs> screw it up though. So, so Except let's for see. Tom. Recap, well, he just leaves all this in, so it'll be fine. So <laughs> recap, let's see. So you can get us at Build Phase. No, that's the other address. See? <laughs> you can email us at host at buildphase.fm. You can get us on Twitter at Build Phase. And as always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. I'm like 80% sure that that's everything I'm supposed to say. <laughs> that's probably it. All right. Talk to you next week. Yep. Thanks. It's cool. Good. See you, man.
1: See ya.